Um, well, it's great to have all you guys here. And uh, again, thanks for being out on a, on a Sunday morning where you have a lot of reasons probably to stay home. It's awesome to see all of you guys here. And so we're so grateful. And if you're watching online, hello. Good to have you guys with us as well. Uh, again, my name is Josh. We are in First Peter this morning. And uh, I just want to cover a couple things before we pray and dig into the scriptures. Number one is I got a, I got a new clicker, which is totally amazing. All right, my $6 clicker uh, was not up to snuff last week. And so Jared Anderson, being the tech genius that he is, is just like, Josh, we just need to get something that's actual quality so that we don't have any clicker malfunctions ever again. So this clicker is like super sweet and nice and way more expensive than anything I'd ever buy normally. So thank you, Jared. So the clicker should work. All right, Sunday nights uh, at with Living Waters. It kicks off in, in full bore focus next week. So next Sunday, February 14th, we have our youth group meeting at 5 o'clock. We have our starting point small group meeting at 5 o'clock. And then we have our theology class also kicking off next week. And so youth group and starting point, you guys are already going. If you're in that group, uh, we would in- encourage you just to keep attending. Theology class is kicking off next week. They're going through the book of Colossians with Pastor Chad. And so you'll be hearing more about that class this week from Chad and from our office. So if you are interested in learning more about the book of Colossians, uh, you can come to Indianola Heights Christian Church at 5 o'clock. That's where it's all happening. We're also doing child care there as well. So if you're like, well, I, got, I need child care. I can't come if I, if I don't have child care. We are now offering child care during that time. So there's no excuse to not learn great theology uh, from Pastor Chad. And so Sunday nights, we're really excited about what God is doing there. Last week was really, really dynamic to have both the youth group and the starting point group meeting at the same time. It was really cool. So um, another thing here, just a heads up, Saturday, February 13th at noon is our new building, new church building cleaning day, okay? And uh, the reason we are doing a cleaning day is because we are getting very close to being approved to meet in our own church building. Amen? Amen. Yes, you can do this. Um, this is really exciting. So we are praying and trusting God for inspection approval with all the inspections that we have, with all the work we've done. So uh, we are meeting next Saturday and we need brooms and we need dustpans and we need shop vacs and we need um, snacks and food. Amen. We need that too. Paper towels, cleaning sprays, like whatever you can bring. And if you can come to the building, come we need as much help as possible to clean that baby. It's 22,000 square feet. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done practically. And this is one of those service projects at church that doesn't come around very often where everybody can come and help. You know, like some church events are like, hey, we want you to help, but then it's like specialty things. Uh, this is a all hands on deck. Everybody do what you can. Clean what you can. Help us, and it'll be uh, it'll be a great day. So that's at noon next Saturday. So... We are kicking off 1 Peter. So um, 1 Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter, and this is our new sermon series that we're starting this morning. I'm very, very excited to get into this text of Scripture with you guys. It's a very timely letter from the Apostle Peter, and uh, the artwork is done by Jake Smith. So thank you, Jake, for getting this uh, sermon art done. That's an awesome job. And if you are artistic, here's just, I want to just give a quick shout out to you before we pray and get into the word. If you are artistic, um, I'm asking you to start thinking through 1 Peter, the letter. 
And I, what I want you to do as a church, what I want us to do is to begin to draw the themes of First Peter out into artistic artwork. So there's a lot of amazing gospel themes that are a part of this book. And I know we have a lot of artists at our church. And I want to begin to unleash some of the artwork within our own congregation. So if you feel inspired by the letter of First Peter in the coming weeks, in the coming months, I want you just to begin to draw like what you start to see in the scriptures. And I'm talking from, you know, from five years old people in our church to 55 or 65. I don't, I don't care your age. If you are drawn towards the arts, it would be cool to share kind of your inspirations of what God is telling you um, as we go through First Peter, okay? So calling all artists, all right? All right, let's pray and uh, let's dig into God's word together. Father, we are so thankful, so grateful for this moment, God, to study your word. This is a pinnacle moment for our week. God, this gets us started with our new week. And God, we need you. We love you. We love Jesus. And we want to see you exalted, God, this morning. So Lord, speak through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So can the way you greet somebody change your life or change the lives of somebody around you? Um, How do you greet someone? And how important is it? Okay, so for some of you, you're big into greetings. You love to give greetings. You love to give hugs. I, I am a hugger, as many of you know. So when, when I greet someone, I'm going to smile. I'm going to say your name. Um, in, in fact, as you guys came into church this morning, I gave most of you a fist bump or a hug if you were available for a hug. And I just wanted to say, welcome to church this morning, right? So, so that is how I do it. And I have grown up with brothers that, that, that we, ha- we, we give each other hugs, we hang out, we, we give each other fist, fist bumps, we do that stuff. Some of you, um, you're not so expressive when you say hello. Um, in fact, some of you don't really think about how you say hello at all, and, and you're like, well, what's the big deal? Well, how we greet one another, how we say hello to one another can either help us gain traction in our lives and in our growth process as human beings, or it can, it can really be a detriment. If you don't get a hello from a certain person, if you get a cold shoulder from somebody, that also affects you. So if you go to Australia, uh, you might get a good day, mate, or uh, as, as my missionary friend Russ Matthews says, good on ya, good on ya. And, and you just get that and you're like, what is that? Good on me, what are you talking about? But in Australia, that's the way you say hi, right? And if, and if you're speaking Spanish, it's buenos dias or Dios te bendiga, or it's, it's bienvenidos, it's that. And you, you either feel that or you don't. Now, in biblical times, you know, sometimes Paul says in the scriptures, greet one another with uh, a hug and a kiss, right? A holy kiss. And, and uh, all Americans are like, no, no, that's not okay. Especially during COVID, right? It's not COVID approved to do that. But here's, here's the reality, why am I talking about how you say hello? Because it's so crucial. It's so crucial for how we as believers grow in Christ based on how we greet one another. That can be a big encouragement or a big discouragement. And I think as we walk into 1 Peter, 
Peter is giving us a hello. He is giving us a greeting. And this greeting in 1 Peter is a grace-filled greeting. It is full of grace, okay? Um, And we're going to take a look at that this morning. So as we look at the context of this, all right, oh, let's go back. There we go. Let's look at the context of this greeting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so let's start with Peter. He is the author of this letter, okay, and he is an apostle. He is a leader in the church, and so he's older at this point, okay? So I don't know if this is what Peter looks like or not, okay? But, but Peter is an older guy when he is writing First Peter, okay? If you remember Peter in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what do you know about Peter? Peter is full of passion. He is full of zeal. He, he acts before he thinks. And probably at the time of Jesus' um, crucifixion and ascension, Peter's in his 30s, okay? Somewhere in there. When the, when the letter of 1 Peter is written, we are talking about A.D. 61, 62, 63. So Peter is not a 30-something anymore. Peter is a 60-plus-year-old apostle, and he is writing from Rome. That's where he's located. He is in Rome, and uh, we know this according to chapter 5 and verse 13 of this Letter, chapter 5, verse 13, Peter refers to himself as, as being in Babylon. And many scholars believe that Babylon, in chapter 5, verse 13, is a reference to Rome. And so Peter is there, and he's not a young guy anymore. He's an older saint. And he is writing during the time of Nero. Um, now, many of you don't know who Nero is, but Nero is the Roman Caesar, who is probably the worst person ever to be underneath of. Uh, Nero was known for his tyranny and his bloodlust. He was kind of a crazy guy. Um, As Peter was writing this letter uh, to the the recipients, Nero was putting his mother to death, okay? His mother, uh, Agrippina, she was one of his chief um, kind of advisors politically. And for the first five or six years of Nero's reign, all good, mom, I'm listening to your advice. Five or six years in, Nero begins to not listen to mom anymore and begins to say, I want to rule based on my own thinking, based on my own agenda. So therefore, instead of putting mom in a retirement home, Nero puts mom to death. Okay? That's what kind of guy he is. Sound like a good guy you want to hang out with? Amen? Okay. Um, Nero started a fire in AD 64 um, in Rome, and this fire... Uh, consumed much of the city. In fact, so much of the city was destroyed. Millions upon millions upon millions of the modern dollars were lost in property damage and buildings. And so um, people were wondering how this fire started. Nero was looking for a scapegoat. And so who did Nero pick to blame the fires on? Christians. He looked to the Christian community. He said it was the Christians who started the fire. Okay, And he blamed the Christians which cleared himself, right? But then it opened the door for him to begin to persecute Christians. And here's what he would do with Christians. He would take believers and he would throw them into the Colosseum where they would be eaten by beasts in front of large crowds. 
Can you imagine being a Christian in that day? You ain't wearing no NFL jersey, amen? You're going into the, you're going into the Coliseum to be eaten for sport and entertainment. Nero would also take Christians whom he blamed for the fire, and he would crucify them on the roads. So you would be hung and crucified as a believer on the side of a road as an example of the person who was to blame for the fire that happened in the city. You didn't even do anything. All you did was profess Jesus as your Savior and Nero would have you crucified. Nero also burned Christians to death. He would, he would encase them in wax and then he would burn them um, at his garden parties. He seemed like a really nice guy, right? And this is the context by which Peter is writing the letter. He is writing underneath the governing authority of one of the worst human leaders known in, in modern history. And in the midst of that, Peter can see, as he's writing this letter down, he can see what is coming. He sees what is brewing on the horizon, and it is persecution. He sees that the, the, the clouds of persecution are coming for the Christian community. And that's why he is writing this letter. That's why he's so passionate about suffering. It's a major theme of 1 Peter. And so he sees the storm coming and he's trying to warn and, and tell believers um, about what is coming their direction. So that is who Peter is and that's his context. But what about the geographical context, okay? Who is Peter writing to? You can see it in verse 1. He's writing to the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, so Peter is writing to five provinces in central and western Turkey. So if you're looking at a modern map, it's central Turkey, western Turkey, okay? Just south of the Black Sea, right there. That's where he's writing to. Now, this is a big time because the provinces that he is writing to have regions underneath them and regions have cities underneath them. So, so the, the, the full capacity or the length and the breadth of who's getting this letter is huge. This is not just to one church. This letter is not to Living Waters Fellowship and Living Waters Fellowship alone. This letter is to a region, five regions, which has lots of cities underneath those regions. So this letter would be huge in its impact because it would be read in all the little churches that are spout, sprouting up and growing all over this area. And Peter is writing to these places. So the reach of this letter is massive. I just want to give you a visual look at the audience of, of where Peter is writing because it ain't Iowa, okay? It is not Iowa. It is not flat farm ground agriculture. All right, I just want to give you a little picture, okay? So this is Pontius. This is modern day Pontius. Beautiful, right? Amen. Do you want to go on vacation to Western Turkey? Anybody else? All right, this is Pontius, and it was near the southern edge of the Black Sea. Um, it was famous for Aquila and Priscilla. They came from this area. And uh, you can find them in Acts 18, verse 2, and they are, the, they are the travel companions and ministry companions of the Apostle Paul. Okay, so let's, uh, let's look at Galatia. Here's Galatia, and uh, Galatia is famous for Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, right? So if you have a New Testament, you know that there is a book called Galatians, all right? Pastor Chad just taught through Galatians all fall at church, and so the, the Galatian region 
is, had a lot of cities in it. And in those cities, that's where Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, okay? So let's look at um, Cappadocia. Here's Cappadocia. How beautiful is this place? Okay, Cappadocia is famous for the city of Caesarea, okay? And the city of Caesarea is in this region, and it was one of the most important centers of early Christianity was Cappadocia, right? So then in Asia, I don't have a picture of Asia, all right, so we'll, we, we'll go past that area. But Asia, this is a really famous place because Paul did a lot of ministry in Asia, um, especially in the cities of Miletus. You'll read about that in the New Testament. Troas, you will read about that in the New Testament. And also Thyatira. So we're going to look at the last picture here. This is Bithynia. And Bithynia was a, a really amazing place because Paul and Barnabas, if you are, are tracking through the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 16, they're trying to go into Bithynia. They want to go preach the gospel in Bithynia. They want to go start a church in Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit stops them from going here. Holy Spirit stops them in their tracks and says, you're not going here. But Peter is writing to this area as well. So I hope that gives you just a little bit of idea of, of who and where Peter is writing to. This is a big time letter at a really crucial time in a huge cultural moment, right, for the Roman Empire and for believers that exist in the Roman Empire. So what's the message and what's the theme of 1 Peter? Okay, the message and theme of 1 Peter is this, that believers must stand firm for the gospel and to look to Jesus as their living hope. Okay, I want to I just highlight two things in this. First Peter, the theme of it is for believers to stand firm for the gospel. Okay, now let's just talk about that. The problem in our modern, secular, postmodern day of America is that churches do not stand for much of anything. Can I get an amen? Churches don't stand for hardly anything anymore. Churches just, whatever the culture says that we should believe, churches are like, okay, we'll believe that. We'll just do that. Whatever doesn't get in the way. And 1 Peter just like hits us in America in 2021 and says, believers, stand firm. What a good message for us this morning. What a great message for modern Christianity. Stand firm in what? In yourself? No, in the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. Church of Jesus, for all of you who are believers in this room and other theater and online, stand firm. If you don't hear anything else I, I say this morning, stand firm in your convictions. And some of you are being pushed right now. You're being pushed to stand and go with whatever at your job, with whatever in your family, with whatever. And it, and it goes directly against scripture. And I want to tell you, stand firm in Christ. And look to Jesus as what? Our living hope. Jesus is our living hope. Now, I'm not just making these things up. This is in the Bible, okay? So in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, According to his great mercy, Peter says he has caused us to be born again. To what? A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So church, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, and the only people that are alive that you care about are Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes, right? Those are the only people that are on sports people's minds today. Can I tell you, there is another man living this morning, amen? And his name is Jesus. And Jesus Christ is alive and well, and he's sitting on his throne, and he is, for a Christian this morning, he is our living hope. Can I get an amen, church? Come on. 
He's our living hope. We're not born again into some dead hope. We're not born again into some, some, Jesus died and he never rose again. Christ rose and he's alive. And he's alive this morning. And that's where we, that's our basis of our hope, right? Secondly, 1 Peter 5, 12. Peter says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting you and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And here it is, stand firm in it. So the theme of 1 Peter is right here. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel that I'm telling you. And so we as Christians, we need to look at the message and the theme of 1 Peter, and we need to say it's a living hope. We're to stand for a minute. So how does Peter encourage believers to stand firm and look at Jesus in his greeting? I mean, it's just a greeting, right? Verse 1, and two, it's just a greeting. It's just a hi, how are you? What can we possibly gather from this greeting? I would, I'm going to argue this morning a lot. We can gather a lot. First of all, or second of all, let's look at the theology of this greeting, okay? Let's look at the theology of the greeting. We've looked at the context of the greeting. Now let's look at the theology of the greeting. Okay, verse 1. To the elect exiles of the dispersion. So Peter is writing, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. So the word elect is electos in the Greek, and it means to be picked out. Uh, People who have been chosen by God to obtain salvation. So the word elect is used 22 times in the New Testament. 22 times God says that he elects or he calls out or he chooses people to be saved. It's one of the most controversial doctrines of the New Testament because a lot of people struggle with the reality of God picking out things, right? God picks out believers. He doesn't pick out other people. It's controversial theologically, right? But it's used 22 times in the New Testament, including including Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 27. Consider the words of our Lord Jesus. He said, and when he, the Son of Man, will be sent out, when he comes back, he, there, there will be, he will send out angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So Jesus himself said that there are elect individuals that, that will be gathered around the throne of God in his kingdom from every single direction. Consider what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9. He said this, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. All right, that's the word elect right there. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there's, there's beauty here in election that the reality is that God chooses sinners to come to know Christ and be saved. Now, the, the controversy is like, well, that means does he not choose other people? Here's the reality. You will never come to the final conclusion of that in your human mind. You just won't. The reality is that of election is that God in his grace would choose any of us is a miracle of his great power. Amen? The fact that anybody's a Christian, that anybody is a, is a chosen one of God is a miracle of God. So, Beyond the theological significance of election, because there is a lot to talk about here between 
a system called Calvinism and a system called Arminianism. Calvinism leaning toward the sovereignty of God. Arminianism leaning toward the responsibility of man. Regardless of that theological debate, which has gone on for 2,000 years, by the way, regardless of that, practically speaking, the recipients of this letter from First Peter, from Peter, they needed to know, as they were dispersed in all of these regions, they needed to know, as persecution was coming, that they were chosen by God. Because if you're going to persevere for, through persecution, you better know you're a Christian. Amen? If someone's going to take you and physically hurt you and marginalize you and fine you financially and make, it, make life really hard for you because you proclaim the name of Jesus, you better hear practically from the Apostle Peter, you're chosen by God. So here's the thing about election. All right? The thing about election is that God knows who's going to be saved. That is without biblical dispute. But the reality is, we don't know who the elect are. <laughs> Praise God, right? Now, a lot of you judgmental Christians, you think you know who are elect, right? You th- oh, that person's elect. They're not. They're, they're saved. They're not, right? We do that, but we don't know. We have no idea who is genuinely saved and who's not. We're just thankful that we are saved. Amen? And because we don't know the mind of God, we don't know the souls of men and women, it keeps us humble that we have a responsibility to go share the gospel, serve people, be practical, go work out our salvation, because we don't know what God knows. So we should be humble about this doctrine. Not get caught up on too many things here. We need to be humble and trust God. I know that's true of my story. I, I walked into the back room of a big, move, of a big uh, hotel conference room, about a thousand people in the room. I walked in the very back of a hotel room And I heard from a very far distance away, I heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard the message. And I can tell you with 100% clarity and confidence, I was not looking for God, but he was looking for me. Amen? God chose me. He found me in the back of, of a big conference room in New York City. I sat there, lost in my sins, not looking for God, but thank God he chose me. Praise God. So I think we know this practically that if God chooses us, it's an amazing thing. Peter is saying you're elect, you're elect. But he also says you're elect exiles. Do you see that next word? Elect exiles. The word exile means stranger or sojourner in a foreign land. Okay, stranger or sojourner in a foreign land. It, um, if you're a stranger and a foreigner in a, in, in a land, you're, and you're just walking around, you're like a Chicago Bears fan looking for a Super Bowl. Amen? You're just a Bears fan looking in the drought desert land of of looking for a Super Bowl. You're just a stranger in a foreign land, right? Um, I think as the people who are recipients of this, they were both physical exiles, right? For sure. They were physical exiles because a lot of them were Jews and Gentiles who were believers, but they had been scattered about in these five regions. And so they were physical exiles. Some of them were Jewish and not necessarily from Pontius, you know, Cappadocia, not from those areas. But I think what what Peter is talking about more than that is not physical exiles, but spiritual exiles. He was telling believers in Jesus that, you know what, you're a, a believer in Christ, which means Jesus is your king, 
and you belong to his kingdom and your home is heaven, therefore you are strangers walking around. And I think we feel this, right, on two different levels, don't we? We feel the reality of our lives. They are fleeting and they are fading quickly. You all know that, right? You're only going to live to be 70 or 80. That's what, that's what Psalm 90 says. Some of you, you think you're going to live forever. You're not going to live forever. None of us are going to live forever. And we feel the physical reality of, I'm a sojourner in this land. I have a, I have a day of my death. I know my days are numbered. We feel that in our souls. But we also feel this spiritually. If we know Jesus, um, Peter's words are for us in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners, and here's, he's saying spiritual exiles, as exiles to abstain from the desires of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter is saying what Jesus said in John 15. Because Jesus said, um, you're not of this world. Your king, my kingdom is not of this world. You are not of this world. So if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we know that we are spiritual exiles, that our number one allegiance is to the kingdom of God. All right, did you hear me, all you politic-loving people? Our number one allegiance is not to a political affiliation nor a kingdom of earth, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your number one allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Amen. I'm not Republican or Democrat. I'm a, I'm a Jesus-following, kingdom of God-seeking resident. And our, our final home is in heaven, not in D.C. or Des Moines, Iowa or wherever. All right, someone else is going to live in your house when you're dead. Everything you have worked for your entire life will be gone in a moment and other people will take your possessions and they will live with them. Christian, hear me out. We are exiles. We are elect exiles. So stop living as if this is it. This is the warm-up for what really is. The kingdom of heaven which will know no end. And we will exist eternally in the new heaven and the new earth. Why do I say that? Because that changes the way we live. If our kingdom is truly heaven, we will live differently here and now. Now, that calls us to be different we are called to have different values. We are called to have different realities spiritually. And that is Christ and him crucified and resurrected from the dead. Christ is our life, as Colossians says. Now, God calls us to be different, not odd. Okay? You tracking with me now? I've said this before to this church. I'm saying it again. God calls us to be different in a winsome way, not odd in a weird way. Stop being weirdo Christian. Can I get an amen? Stop it. Stop being so strange that you can't connect to anybody who doesn't know Jesus. I am, I, I, our Christian culture is so weird sometimes. And as a pastor, I get so frustrated because Christians are just weirdos. 
And I'm just like, Christ didn't call us to be weird. He called us to be different, winsome, joyful influencers. Okay? He didn't call you to, to, to just do whatever you want and slap a Christian label on it and weird everybody out around you. We are exiles, which means we are different, but not odd. Okay? So, as we look at that reality, right, the theology of Peter's greeting, we look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Okay, so we are elect exiles according to, according to, from God the Father, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this Greek word is really interesting. It literally is prognosis. That's the Greek word. Okay, so we use it in the medical field all the time, the prognosis, right? It, it literally means knowing things before they happen. So if you get a prognosis about your health, they're trying to tell you what is going to happen to you before it happens. Their best guess of what is the problem. And this is the reality of the foreknowledge of God. We have been saved by Jesus, praise God, by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Which means that this is the omniscient nature of God. This is God being smarter than you and smarter than me. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen in our lives before we know what's going to happen with our lives. So in Acts 2.23, the apostles talk about this very word. It said, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified, you Jews crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's the same word there. So if you're thinking about the foreknowledge of God being involved in your salvation, here's the song I want you to think of. He's got the whole world in his hands. We should have sang that for the worship set. He's got the whole world in his hands. You know that kid's song? That's foreknowledge. God has the whole world in his hands, praise Jesus. And he has your salvation already done. It's already done. If you are saved, you've been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved forever and eternity based on the foreknowledge of God. He already knows how it's going to end. Praise God. So when you pray to God, hey, God, help me persevere in my faith. Help me keep loving Jesus. Help me keep loving the Bible. Sometimes when we do that, we pray to God, we think, it's all on me. It's all on me. I got to just do this. I got to survive to the end. When you pray, you should start praying, God, according to your foreknowledge, you save me, which means you're going to keep me, which means as I pray, I pray humbly but confidently that you're going to keep doing the work, Philippians 1, 6, that you started. You're going to finish it in me. Praise God. So we're saved according to the foreknowledge of God and through the sanctification of the Spirit, right? So it's the th- sanctification of the Spirit. What's that about? Well, the Holy Spirit is involved in your salvation. How is the Holy Spirit involved in your salvation? He is the one who convicts the world of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to the heart. Have you ever had that happen to you? How about this week, right? The Holy Spirit's convicting you, saying, hey, this is wrong. This is wrong. This needs to be right. You You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have reacted this way. Boom, that's the Spirit of God at work in your life. 
You're saved initially through that initial conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit saying this is wrong and this needs to be right. The Holy Spirit also does, according to the God's word, gives repentance. The Holy Spirit brings regeneration. The Holy Spirit brings adoption. The Spirit of God is very powerful. And when he is at work, he saves you. That's why salvation is never of man. Salvation is not from the pastor. Amen? It's not from the pastor. I can't save you. The salvation is never from your religiosity, your church attendance, how good you are, what you give away every year. That's not salvation. Salvation is from the Holy Spirit. When he comes inside the soul of a human being and convicts of sin, regenerates the heart, leads someone to Jesus, and then causes someone to call out to Jesus for the first time. That is from the Holy Spirit. So Christian, how should you be praying? You shouldn't pray that your church becomes the most popular church in the history of the world. You shouldn't pray that somebody else should do the work in your neighbor's life. You should pray that the Holy Spirit works in the heart of sinners to cause them to be born again. Because the Holy Spirit saves, right? So foreknowledge, sanctification, and then finally to obedience to Jesus Christ. Peter says that we have been saved for obedience to Jesus, okay? And so that idea is basically that you are saved in such a way that you will obey Jesus, right? Authentic salvation is always fleshed out in obedience to Jesus Christ. So, So in John 8, 31, Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're really my disciples. If you're really born again, you will obey Jesus. You will obey God. Can I get a witness? Amen? Like, if you're really saved, you will obey. Now, you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't always obey perfectly. So am I really saved? Am I really born again? I don't obey all the time. Well, look, our obedience is not perfect and it's not complete. But if we truly know Jesus, our obedience is a pattern. Amen? It's a pattern. You just work it out. You make mistakes. You share the gospel. You learn from your sin. And so you see the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and you see obedience to Jesus Christ. And I just want to make this point. Salvation is essentially Trinitarian. All right, do you see the Trinity here? Do you see it? God the Father involved in your salvation. God the Son involved in your salvation. And God the Spirit involved in your salvation. Praise God we're not Mormon. Can I get a witness? Come on. Praise God that when we, say, when we say salvation happens, it is Father, Son, Spirit all at work. As we look at our own salvation, right, we find our confidence and our security and our identity in Jesus Christ. Father, Son, Spirit, saving me. Can I speak a little bit to uh, social media, if I might? Okay, like I saw this really funny tweet this morning. And it was, it was a picture of a woman just like, like scrolling like this. Like, just anxious thought, like anxious face. She's scrolling like this. And, and the, the, uh, the funny title was um, Secure, Treasured, lo- Beloved Daughter of God Seeking Affirmation on Social Media Once Again, right? And it, it's, it speaks so much to us. If this is true, if this is how we're saved, the Trinity of Almighty God, Father, Son, Spirit, is the one saving us. 
And if God through his Trinitarian reality is saving us, we don't need social media likes to affirm us. Amen? I don't need a certain number of people saying, we really like you, we love you, we affirm you. I don't need affirmation from this world. I have affirmation from Almighty God through Christ, Father, Son, Spirit, salvation. So let's look at the third reality, the blessing of the greeting. So we've seen the theology of Peter's greeting. It's very powerful. And then finally, it's just, I want to look at the blessing of it. The blessing of the greeting. He says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace. Grace means God's unmerited favor. May grace be upon your life, your soul, your mind. May peace be in your heart and mind and soul. And then he says, may it be multiplied. So basically what that means is, may grace and peace explode into your life. That is a great prayer. Are you catching Peter's passion for his people? Are you catching this reality of how Peter prays? He doesn't pray that that they get a BMW next year. He doesn't pray that they get healthy, wealthy, and wise this year. He doesn't pray for health, wealth, prosperity. He prays that grace and peace would be multiplied in the hearts of those recipients of the letter. Picture yourself in Pontius, like you're, you're sitting in that room. There is no social media, and you hear the Apostle Peter's letter is coming to your town. And you are coming to hear the word of God, and you get around a house setting with your small group, and you get the Apostle Peter's letter read to you. In the moment, as you listen to it, you hear grace and peace multiply. And you say, that guy, I've never even met him, and he cares for me that way. He cares for me. He wants blessings into my life. God's peace is God's shalom from Jewish ideas, which basically means a peace of soul. In a, in a postmodern world that we live in, what I see missing in our culture more than, than anything else is peace. People don't have peace. They're not at rest. In their soul, and their mind, they have broken relationships because of sin. They have brokenness all over their life. They have broken communication. They have broken separation from people that they love. And in our culture, we're constantly, we're constantly doing this. We're constantly agitated to stay active so that we don't have to think about our chaotic experience in our mind and heart. But peace is the contentment of soul. And so I just want to end the sermon with this. There's a guy praying in the sunset. I, that's kind of how I pray every day, right? Don't, don't you guys pray only when the sunset's really nice like this? You lean down. Peter is praying powerfully for this group of believers. And he's praying spiritual blessings that flow through Jesus Christ into the hearts and lives of of his friends. So my question is twofold for you. Do you pray like this? Do you pray like this? And two, do you have someone praying for you like this? If you're a Christian here and you don't have someone praying for your 
grace and peace being multiplied into your life through Jesus Christ, here's a practical application of this message. Go recruit a prayer warrior that will pray this blessing into your life every day. Go find somebody, some believer that will care about you enough to pray this way for you every day. And then secondly, are you that person for someone else? How do you pray for your friends? Well, God, be with them. Be with them. I mean, how many times have we prayed that prayer? Be with them, God. Yeah, bless them, God. You know, just, just help them get through their thing. Peter doesn't have that prayer in mind. He's not saying, hey, survive. He's saying, thrive. I want you to be thriving spiritually as Nero and his persecution comes your way and you are going to get your head chopped off for Jesus. I want you to have joy, infinite joy in that moment as you endure suffering for Christ. I want you to have joy because we're praying that joy into your life. When they take your house and they throw you in jail and they fine you a bunch of money, because you're not bowing, I want you to have grace and peace in your heart. Some of you are Christians because it's convenient. Some of you are Christians because it's a conviction. I don't know. I can't see hearts. I just know those two categories exist. Some of you are Christians because it's convenient, and you're like, hey, God blesses me. He gives me what I want. Some of you are like, it's a conviction. So, Jesus prayed, right? How did he pray for Peter? Do you remember Peter, 30 years earlier? He said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Do you remember Jesus saying this to Peter? But I have prayed for you. That after you have fallen... And when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. That's how I want Jesus praying for me. Jesus wants blessing. But it comes through hard things. And Christ prays for us as his church right now. He lives to intercede for us, the Bible says. Grace and peace in our lives. And if you know Christ, oh, be that blessing to somebody else. Be it. To somebody else. So, as we close, I just um, I just want to just talk to you, and we'll pray, and we'll sing. What a grace-filled greeting! What a greeting from the Apostle Peter this morning. How do you greet other people in your life? What's your face look like? This is a bummer of masks, right? I can't see your face. The beauty of of what God's called us to is to greet one another as Christians in the way Peter does. Grace-filled. So this morning, if you consider Peter's context, maybe suffering's coming our way. Maybe that's the reality of what's coming our way. And if that is true, praise God. Praise God. If we got to suffer and get fined and all those things, and go to prison, and if, that's, if that is our next season, may we pray for each other like this. 
And as we greet one another, may we not take for granted the gift of conversation. May we not look past one another and walk past one another. May we greet one another like this, to build each other up and to see each other be filled with grace and peace. May we pray at home like this for one another, for our family, for our kids, for our parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts. May we pray for one another this way. And finally, Jesus is ultimately the the greeting of all greetings. Some of you don't know him. You haven't been introduced yet. But Jesus Christ loves you. He came to this earth to greet you as a sinner and to meet you right where you are and to save you from your sins because he he is so gracious. He is so powerful and so gracious. So he died on the cross for your sins and he rose again from the dead that if you would believe, if you would believe, you would be saved. So that invitation is for you who don't know Jesus yet. And for those of you who do, oh, may God just richly bless us this morning to give the same kind of greetings that we've been given by Peter. Let's all stand up and we'll pray together. Brandon will close us up in some singing. God, we are so thankful this morning for your word. Lord, what a greeting. What a grace-filled greeting, God. The context of this greeting is beautiful. It's powerful, hard. But Lord, the, the theology is so rich. Lord, we've been foreknown. We've been sanctified by the Spirit. We've been saved for obedience to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we as believers would just treasure that. That we would just treasure the strong security and power that we have in our standing in Jesus. And Lord, we've been saved to pray. We've been saved to bless We've been saved to pray blessings of grace and peace upon each other and to to receive those prayers from other Christians. So God, maybe that's what you're calling us to this morning in a really big way. It's just to be loved and to love others. To pray blessing upon one another's lives. God, if that's what you have for us this morning, may we embrace it with all of our hearts. God, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, but Lord, you're stirring in their hearts right now, you're stirring in their soul, you're you're causing them to just feel things, a need for salvation, a need for forgiveness. Lord, would you, would you just cause that person right now, would you just cause them to cry out to you for the first time in their lives and ask Jesus to be their Lord and Savior? Lord, you've already saved several people in the last few weeks, and we give you praise for that. But Lord, would you just do it again this morning? Would you just touch our hearts as we sing in Jesus' name?